0: This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, October the 7th, 2022. Uh, A few months ago, a very interesting conversation on the show uh, with a British... Norwegian um, historian Kat Jarman, Uh, she has a magnificent new book out, a prize-winning book on the Vikings, River Kings, a new history of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads, that presents the Vikings as the first sort of globalizing innovator people. We're going to talk Vikings, or at least um, Northern European innovators, uh, today with my guest, who's also an authority on Vikings. Nancy Marie Brown is the author of a number of highly uh, well-received books on the Vikings, including The the Far Traveller, Voyages of a Viking Woman, The Real Valkyrie, The Hidden History of Viking Warrior Women, uh, Songs of the Vikings, um, and The Saga of Gudrid*. And she's got a really intriguing new book out it's kind of about the vikings and kind of about something quite magical uh it's called looking for the hidden folk how iceland's elves can save the earth incredibly innovative and an intriguing proposition and nancy's joining us um, from someone's library um in ithaca new york nancy uh welcome uh excuse the ignorance of my questioning but I am a fairly ignorant fellow. Um, are people from Iceland Vikings, or is this separate? Um, are, are w- w- What is the relationship between Vikings and people from Iceland?
1: Well, you can say that Iceland was settled during the Viking Age, so in that sense, they could be considered um, Vikings or of the same people as were in the Viking Age. But the ones who came to Iceland were, in general, the failed Vikings, the retired Vikings, uh, the people who wanted a peaceful life, who wanted to be farmers, and uh, who were on the losing side of the Viking battles, the ones that um, were not supporting of King Harold Fairhair, who wanted to unify Norway. And so they were looking for a place where they could continue to live their own lifestyle and not have to bow down to a king. Um, they were, they were, so they were the
0: Vikings. um, Nancy, were they the the countercultural Vikings, the California, Northern, yeah, Northern
1: California Vikings? Uh, some of them went to Ireland first and uh, uh, married into the clans in Ireland or um, you know, tried to make a living there, didn't succeed, or decided that there wasn't enough opportunity for them, so they moved on, uh, brought. Irish um, family members and slaves with them. So you have a mix of Norwegian and Irish people coming to Iceland in the late 800s, fleeing from, you know, some of the Viking uh, violence, or just having, you know, outlived it, or again, being on the wrong side of the battle. So it was the Viking age, but there wasn't any Viking raids in Iceland. And if you well, these to be are the a,
0: non-violent vikings yeah well but if you even, wanted to be a viking even you, more could, attractive.
1: you could go back to norway you know and join a viking band and, and a lot of the young men did that but um, viking uh, violence never came to iceland really
0: so as i said at the beginning i'm going to get to the book um, which isn't it's kind of about vikings i guess um as you say about a different the the loser vikings or or the myths of the loser vikings or maybe they're not myths um but before we get there uh, as i said you've written four or five books on the vikings what is it about vikings and particularly viking women that you found so interesting you spent so much time writing about the real valkyrie was a big hit Mm -hmm. um songs of the viking The Far Traveler, Voyages of a Viking Woman. What is it about these peoples that have inspired you so much, Um, Nancy? What dedicated your life to them?
1: Yeah, what got me started was the Icelandic sagas. Um, These are texts written down in the 13th and 14th century, talking about the Viking Age. So, talking about things two to 400 years earlier. And I had been studying medieval literature. I'd been interested in the Arthurian romances. And when I discovered the Icelandic sagas, which were being written at the same time as the King Arthur stories, I saw immediately that the sagas were talking about real people. They're talking about people's real lives, their farms, their fishing boats, their horses, their uh, the way they made cheese. And it was so different from medieval literature um, in Europe, especially in France, which was all about kings and queens and you know, the elite people. In Iceland you actually learned about the ordinary people. So I started studying the Icelandic sagas and I realized that what the sagas mostly talked about was the men's lives. Um, These were books written generally by men, we think. Uh, They were written by people who had a Christian education. They were looking back to the pagan times and they were mostly interested in the lives and the politics of men and I thought what can we learn about the women's lives of that time and I started with my book The Far Traveler because there is a woman mentioned uh, going with the uh, expeditions to North America around the year 1000 her name is Gudrid. and the more I looked into her the more I realized that she owned one of the ships that she was a leader of the expedition, that she was not just a woman along to do the cooking or the sewing. She was actually the force behind the expedition, the exploration of North America. She tried to go there three times. Uh, She was an extremely brave uh, seafarer, having crossed the North Atlantic eight times in an open boat. So she really inspired me. I ended up writing two books about her. But to learn about her, I had to not only look at the texts, the Icelandic sagas, but also the archaeology. So I learned an awful lot about Viking Age archaeology, about textile work, about, um, you know, what we know about daily life in the Viking Age in order to learn what her role in life would have been. And that mix of sagas and archaeology has been something that I've pretty much followed through in, in all of my books about the Vikings.
0: So you've moved, though, in this latest book from studying ordinary people, um, particularly uh, female Vikings or female Icelandic people, innovators, voyagers, to the hidden folk. Who are the hidden folk in, in, your, in your new book, Looking for the Hidden Folk, How Iceland's Elves Can Save the Earth? Well,
1: hidden folk is a translation of the Icelandic word huldufolk. And that word is used often to describe the elves, but also other people who might be hidden in the landscape. So that would include, include trolls. It would include mountain spirits. It could include um, giants, frost ogres. Um, so it's both the, the small, comforting, helpful type uh, invisible people, but also the, the threatening, dangerous, um, terrifying uh, hidden people. Um, Most Icelanders might uh, think of hidden folk as being human sized um, people from another world who sometimes cross into our world and interact with people and sometimes take people to another world to show them things or to ask them for favors or just to um, uh, keep them, you know, kidnap them. So When I'm using the word hidden folk, it's not always precisely the way an Icelander would use the word. I'm also interested in the ancestors who live inside the hills, uh, who were buried inside the hills or who thought that they would physically go move into the hills when they died, which is another type of a a tradition in Iceland, that they're the holy mountains that people live inside. So I'm thinking about hidden folk in more of a, a broader uh, way than traditional Icelanders might do so, but uh, basically they are the elves. They are the nature spirits of Iceland.
0: Nancy, I've had the good fortune to go to Iceland. Uh, I'm sure you spent a great deal of time there. It's a remarkable place, tiny little island, but uh, beautiful and and I use this word carefully, magical. Do you think that this belief in elves? Um, is this somehow a reflection of the geography of the island? Is its uniqueness a reflection of the uniqueness of the the, the geographical magic of, of 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 the Icelandic landscape?
1: I think you can say that's true. Um, when the Icelanders came, when the people came who settled Iceland, there was no one living there. There was no indigenous people on this island, and so. There were no stories about. What year what was Indian that? About, was, um, uh, the eight seventies is the is the traditional about date. About twelve
0: or thirteen hundred um, years ago. Yeah,
1: yeah, it could have been earlier in the eight hundreds. That date's being debated, but you know, or late in the the ninth century, um, there was no one living there. There'd never been anyone living there. There was no indigenous people uh, on this island. And so there were no stories about how do you exist in this environment, which really is quite dangerous and quite unpredictable. The The weather patterns are extremely different than what you'd be used to in Norway or even in the British Isles. Uh, the storms come up in really fast. It, the the wind is terrifying.
0: Um, the fall- As You've got the, the volcanoes and the earthquakes.
1: Volcanoes, yeah. You have, you have sea ice surrounding the country sometimes in the winter. Um, you have floods, you have landslides. You know, it's, there, there aren't any large trees. There weren't when the settlers came. Um, there were, you know, some that could be maybe used for building a house, but nothing big enough for building a seagoing ship. And soon after the Icelanders uh, settled, they denuded large parts of the country because they cut down the trees to build their houses, to make charcoal. They brought in grazing animals, like sheep, uh, horses, cows, geese, pigs that, that you know, ate off you know, the, down to the roots of you know, a lot of the forest areas. It grew up in grass. It didn't grow back in trees, which is what it would have done in Norway. Um, they didn't realize that they were changing the environment so much and that it was it was dangerous um, to do so. So you can't grow grain in Iceland. You know, they were used to growing grain. It's, it's very rare that you can actually get a crop other than grass to, you know, to make hay in, in Iceland. And this has not really changed since the, the settlement time.
0: Why did they... So- I mean, the more you describe it, I mean, it's a mm-hmm. magnificent place to visit now, particularly as a tourist. But why would they ever would have settled? I mean, Norway was also, in its own way, I guess, quite forbidding. But compared to Iceland, it was the Mediterranean.
1: Yeah, it actually was because there was there was a lot of uh, infrastructure, you would call it, in Norway that they didn't have in Iceland. I mean, they didn't have the Gulf any...
0: Stream, so it made it much warmer.
1: It's, a well, maybe not much warmer than, not it warmer than southern, so warmer. southern Norway. Uh, certainly not warmer than the British Isles. Uh, navigation was very difficult through, or travel through the country. There was no navigable rivers. You couldn't use your ships there. You had to, you know, use horses. The reason they came was because it was free land, and there was no, mm. king. there was no government telling them, you know how to live, what to do. There was it was no kind of um, the
0: America, just as America was that for mm-hmm. the United for the United Kingdom. So Iceland was the land of freedom,
1: and the shining city on
0: the hill for the Norwegians.
1: Mm-hmm. It could be, yeah, you could think of it that way. Um, and they didn't know it was going to be so hard because if you go only in the summer, which is when I usually go. Um, <laughs> It seems right? to be, yeah, it seems to be very um, peaceful and comforting and lots of greenery, lots of birds, you know, lots of things to eat, birds and birds' eggs. And, and you know, you don't realize that it's going to get so bad when you have those, those splendid 24-hour days in the summer. But in the wintertime, it is dark, it is cold, it is raining. All the birds migrate south, you know, not all of them, but, you know, the ones that you want to eat migrate south. Uh, If you haven't put up enough hay for your animals, they will not survive. So it was a very difficult environment for them to learn how to live in. And, And that's really where the elf stories start coming in, is that they told stories about how to survive in this environment, what you should do, what you should not do, you know, how you are going to be punished if you do the wrong thing. And these stories were passed down generation to generation um, by, you know, looking at how um, the land is, is teaching you how to live with it, how mm. it is teaching you how to survive in this harsh environment and answering your questions. If you, if you take the time to look and to sit and to ask the land, how can I be here? And then, you know, some people would say the elf is the one who is answering you. The elf was the steward of the farm in one of the farms, in one of the sagas this elf that lived in a large rock. The farmer would go to the elf and say, uh, do I have enough hay put aside for my horses or should I be gathering seaweed this year? And after some you know, moments of contemplation he would or she would feel that they had received an answer. Uh, yes, you better you better uh, get some bales of, of seaweed off of the shore and dry it because you may run out this year. Um, so this is where the elf ideas come in.
0: So it's and- the elves sir? Uh, almost as if nature could talk as if the land could talk, mm-hmm. they were the, the human way of, of, of manifesting personhood for the land for the environment is that fair
1: that uh, yeah I think that's fair um the way you you know the way you interact with nature um the way you see nature is depends on how you have been taught and and educated to see it how you remember to see it and for the Icelanders it was a living nature so the rocks and the trees and the grass and the wind and the mountains all had spirits in them that could talk to you if you were willing to listen. And if you were not willing to listen, they would, they would do what they were going to do anyway. So there would be um, snowstorms, there would be fog, there would be avalanches, there would be floods. And these are, are ways in which earth can talk to you volcanic eruptions if you've ever actually sat in front of an erupting volcano which which i've done it's you know you're seeing the earth being born but you're also seeing it uh communicate with you and say you know how really small and insignificant you are as a person compared yeah, i just
0: saw a movie i don't know if you've seen about a couple of french if this is the right word uh, volcanologists who yeah spent their lives traveling around the world um, following volcanic eruptions. They were eventually killed in one, but that's how they presented. Yeah, that's actually a movie by a friend of
1: mine. No, I haven't seen it yet. It's by a friend of mine, Sarah Dosa. And Sarah also um, did a movie about uh, Raquel de Jonstadter, who is the same elf seer that I have written about in Looking for the Hidden Folk. So Sarah and I are actually going to be having some conversations about this.
0: yeah, this it's really idea interesting. So,
1: of the earth being alive. It's right. So Nancy ideas. Uh,
0: extending this comparison with the United States, when the British settled North America, they of course weren't the first people to be there. They mm-hmm. saw nature in a in a very extractive Lockean sense. You're presenting the Icelanders' relationship with the earth manifested in the mythology, if you like, of the elf, as something quite the reverse. Uh, yes. Nature is not something to be exploited, to be seized, mm-hmm. but something to be respected.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a failure um, on our part as uh, Americans. And it's an accident of the time that we came to this country, that, you know, after the Enlightenment, the, the idea that you could talk to nature that you could see creatures that you could interact with the spirits of nature became a somehow silly and only for children and not not worth um intellectual thought and it hadn't been that way i mean through the renaissance people communed with um, springs and rivers and if you you know had to cut down trees you had to speak to The forest and get its approval in order to do this, you had to to treat nature with much more respect because there were spirits living in these uh, places, even in Western Europe, we believed that through the Renaissance. Uh, When we came to North America, the idea was that humans were the only uh, species that mattered and everything else was put here for us to use as a resource. We still talk about our forest resources and our, our you know, water resources and our mineral resources. Um, the Icelanders never actually took part in the enlightenment when that was you know, all happening in Europe. Iceland was a very depressed and poor country suffering from frequent volcanic eruptions. They were a colony of Denmark that was fairly overlooked Uh, Most of the Icelanders were living at extremely low subsistence level, but they had retained their concepts of the earth as being a living uh, being and that every part of nature has a spirit and a value so that you could see a rock as not just something in the way of a road, but as a home for other life, for life that you may not see you may not ever speak to, but that is as important as your kind of life, your human life. Uh, Yeah, it's interesting
0: that we've done a number of shows on indigenous peoples, particularly of North America, and this seems to fit quite comfortably into their own relationship with the earth, Mm -hmm. with mythology. So let's get to the core of the book, which is a fascinating argument, and, and I think quite compelling, really, uh, the the, su- the subtitle of the book is How Iceland's Elves Can Save the Earth. I'm not sure if you really believe it's the elves themselves or the mythology around the elves. Explain why this, um, this, this and again, I use this word carefully, maybe you'll correct me, the mythology of Iceland's elves can be so helpful in terms of today's environmental crisis, both in theory and in practice, because there's a lot of stuff going on in Iceland about Um, challenging building of highways and so on through elvish, elfish philosophies.
1: Well, one of the things that I point out in the book is, is the power of stories to really shape how you interact with the, with the earth. Uh, It's the stories we tell about nature and about places that make us want to either protect things or destroy, allow us to destroy them. And you were right to point out the Native American stories when uh, the American settlers, the European settlers, came to America, they didn't listen to the stories. Um, and I think that was a, a a big mistake because it's the stories that tell you what is important, and you know how you are going to how you should treat the earth. I think you know we all tell stories. Everyone, you know humans have been storytellers from the beginning. But I think that modern people have sort of forgotten what the point of storytelling is, that it really is um, what Ursula K. Le Guin calls a sacred calling. Uh, The stories are what help you live a good life. The the point of being a storyteller is to create the society that allows everyone to continue living. And we've sort of forgotten that. And it's a sort
0: of an ancestral quality. We've done some shows on... Mm -hmm thinking of ourselves as ancestors passing on the land and the world to future generations. That's sort of bound up in all this, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah, it is. And the the Icelanders do it through storytelling. Uh, They do it very well um, because they have continued this concept of elves in the landscape since the very earliest days of their settlement, since, you know, the 800s. through the, you know, the 1500s, you can find descriptions of elves living in the hills. In the 1800s, they collected a lot of these stories into books. So now, you know, people will think of elves as being 19th century, in 19th century dress living in the, in the hills, but they're still the same nature spirits. And when you think of the earth as being important in and of itself, not just as a resource for you, if you think of, you're building a road as trespassing on an elf church, on an elf sacred area. And if you stop and think, well, do I really need a road that is that large or can I make it a little smaller and preserve the elf church, preserve the beauty of this lava field that many uh, artists have gone to, to, to sit in for inspiration, to paint in. Uh, the artist Kjálval liked to paint out in the lava field and let the rain fall on his canvases. He liked the you know, the visual aspect that, that he would get. Uh, when you think of the earth as being not put there for your own benefit, but being of value in and of itself, then you treat it differently. And uh, one of the um, stories that I tell in this book is of a, a young Icelandic woman who's talking to a philosopher from the US and she says, something you need to know is that Iceland, Icelandic children are taught not to crush stones. They're taught not to hurt the stones because the stones are also important. And something the artist uh, Oliver Eliasson says that I also quote in the book is that because of the way the light works in Iceland, the, the low Arctic light, he says, a little stone will cast a much longer shadow that the shadow is always bigger than the object. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that Icelanders are looking at, that the importance of a stone in the pathway and how that can be beautiful, it can be sacred, it can be meaningful to to you, it can remind you of your own mortality, it can remind you that you are passing on the earth to the next generation, and it's not there for you to use up. And this is having real,
0: I mean, this is... A charming story, of course, in its own right, but this is having real consequences in environmental policy. Uh, laying a road, building a house, constructing a dam, particularly the mm-hmm. highway issue, is is playing out um, in Iceland. So every time there's a dispute about whether there is should be a new road or a um, a dam or a new fancy house, uh, people use the elfish mythology often to 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 counter this development is it extensive I mean Reykjavik is quite a large town now
1: yeah um I think one thing you have to understand is the Icelandic character is very playful and humorous and they have great fun with the concepts of the elves and um And of of storytelling in general, They, they really have a wonderful sense of humor about all these things, if you think of construction sites in America just about anywhere, you will probably think of one that was over budget that didn't produce what it was supposed to produce that ended up being unsafe that. Um, you know, as they're building the road, they expose certain minerals that, you know, causes it to become a toxic waste site. This happened close to one of my houses. Um, You just think of all of these um, things that we do wrong with our development, Uh, developments that fail because no one wants to live there or that get flooded. And in Iceland, when a development is going forward, you're right that somebody will step up and they will say, oh, wait, there's an elf living in that rock. Let's talk about this. And one of the good things about that is that it delays the process. They go back to thinking about, you know, the environmental impact, the historical impact, the, uh, the need for the project, uh, whether they're doing it right. You know, sometimes it's just You know, they need two or three days because the workers are just so overstressed and overtired that the equipment keeps breaking down. You know, the equipment breaks down. They say, oh, the elves have have been fighting back. Well, you wait three or four days. The elves have a chance to move out and, OK, you can proceed with the project and it's safe again. So there's there's many ways of looking at how are Icelanders using the concept of elves? And what do they mean by listening to the? Is it
0: built in in any way to the legal system there or the commercial codes?
1: Um, not really, that I know of. I mean, part of their you know environmental impact statement is to look at the impact on on historic, historical sites and archaeological sites and sites that are tied up with folklore. So they do have to check to see: Are we going through an area? that is historically or artistically important. So that's part of the process. Um, But some of the more famous elf intervention stories are when the stories of the elves or the feeling that people have that elves are living there is not old enough to have been written down and codified in the books of folklore. And so that place doesn't come up on the map that the environmental you know, impact statement makes you look at. So this is adding to um, the places that we should be thinking about as being in some way worth preserving. And in Iceland, you know, you have so few places that you can actually live in this country. The, the whole middle of the country is like a, a volcanic desert with glaciers and, and black sand. You can't even cross the central highlands uh, for most of the year. So to be paving over you know beautiful places where you could actually grow grass or or graze sheep or that you want to walk in because they are you know inspiring and and beautiful places where moss is growing and seabirds are nesting and that sort of thing You, you don't want to destroy too much because you don't have a lot of land to choose from Iceland is really very small
0: Finally, Nancy, uh, some people will be watching this and saying, well, this is uh, very cute, very precious for the Icelandic culture, but it wouldn't work in the United States, extremely different, or in larger countries like Germany or China. I wonder, though, whether we all have this longing for this, the hidden folk, perhaps reflected in popularity of The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Do you see a a, a broader longing for the mythology of the elves um, in outside uh, Iceland?
1: Well it's good that you brought up Tolkien because his conception of the elves like Galadriel um, is taken from the old Icelandic and that is the original concept of the elf in Iceland was of a beautiful, powerful nature spirit who could help you, but could also stand in your way. So you don't have to think of them as little people. You can think of them as, you know, Galadriel and Elrond. Um, I think that we all are looking for this kind of connection to the earth. We are all looking for, you know, the trees to talk back to us. We are looking for them to explain to us, how can we live in this, Uh, earth without destroying it? What do we have to do in order to um, make up for the mistakes of the last 150 years? You know, how do we proceed in the future, without, you know, essentially destroying the planet? And what the the stories of the elves in Iceland are telling us is that you have to slow down, you have to pay attention, you have to go out into nature and sit and look at it and appreciate it and think about it. And that actually makes people feel much better. It makes people feel good to do what they call forest bathing in some cultures. It's just allow nature to interact with you. Don't constantly be plugged into your headphones and your, and your, uh, your phones, because it's, not all about you. The universe really doesn't care about you. The earth will go on after humans are gone. But if we wanna live here, we have to start paying attention.
0: Wise words from Nancy Marie Brown. I joked before the cameras went on that I thought she was gonna be an elf, but doesn't look like one, but she has elfish wisdom. Congratulations, Nancy, on the new book, Looking for the Hidden Folk, How Iceland's Elves Can Save the Earth. I think you are really onto something there um the book's just out so i think it's going to be one of those cultish books that everyone will read especially environmentalists we've done so many shows on the environment and it's it's an important book i think and an important argument in a broader cultural context what else are you reading these days nancy
1: well actually the book that i um have just started and i haven't finished it seems to me like the handbook for following on from you know what I've been saying in Looking for the Hidden Folk, if you're not an Icelander, uh, you should read Karen Armstrong's book, Sacred Nature. Um, it's a way of, of looking mm. at this idea that nature is sacred, holy, a way of, of preserving it and our own selves through the traditional religions um, of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and how we can recreate some of the rituals and some of the, um, the love of the earth that those religions had in the beginning that we may have forgotten or that we no longer pay attention to. So she's reinterpreting, you know, standard religions in a way that would be consistent with Icelandic elf, you know, knowledge. Very, very.